morning we're going to be in John chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It's the second half of the teaching that we started two Sundays ago. And the last time we covered basically when the majority is wrong. And today we're going to look at more on Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles and the symbolism behind it. Furthermore, the understanding of the living waters that Jesus offers behind that Feast of Tabernacles. And the background is that Jesus goes from Galilee to Jerusalem. His brothers, half-brothers, younger brothers, uh, try to urge him to go to Jerusalem and make a big splash. And Jesus says, you know, it's got to be in the Father's timing. So at some point he does leave Galilee. He travels south, goes to Jerusalem where the feast is taking place. And at the appointed time, he goes up into the temple and he starts preaching. Now, what we also see is that the command that Christ had, of course, over the scripture was amazing. The religious leaders, the entrenched religious system, you know, I can just picture them nudging each other going, the Jewish boy from Galilee, I haven't seen him on our enrollments. How does he know so much? Again, not understanding the Messiahship and not understanding that he is the son of God. Uh, We also know that he tries to break down their fallacious, entrenched religionism and tries to move them onto a relationship with God. And we'll see that behind the symbolism. So starting in verse 24, which is where we ended up last time, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Um, And they were looking at Jesus and the fact that he healed the man and made him whole on the Sabbath. Uh, They had a problem with that. But what they weren't seeing was his claims of deity and his claims of uh, bringing salvation. And I think that's a good lesson for the church as well. God doesn't want us to check our minds at the door when we open up our Bibles or we come into church. He wants us to judge, but not according to appearance. Judge righteously. And in every church, there is that element of, I like somebody because of the way they look, or I don't like somebody because of the way they look. Judge with a righteous judgment and not according to appearance. Verse 25. And some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Sadly, the crowd represents a multitude of opinions in the world. And it's no different today. Some are correct about the Lord. Some are a hodgepodge. You know, I have, you know, there's some correct ideas and some incorrect ideas, and some are completely incorrect. Now, I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 11, two verses. This is very important, because when we look at the world's opinion, when we go to a social event, and or you go to work, and maybe around the water cooler, some are talking about the Bible or Jesus, this is what you'll find, a hodgepodge of ideas. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4, here's the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So the Apostle Paul was concerned about them being deceived with another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not even a Jesus. At that point, you've made God in your image, where God really made us in his image. That's what we do in our culture today. You know, we find the doctrine, we find the church that's based on our lifestyle, or what we desire, or what we would like to see, or what we would do if we were God. 
But there's going to be a lot of back and forth in here, a lot of opinions. Some are going to be correct, some are going to be incorrect about Jesus Christ as the crowd starts to speak. And it says those from Jerusalem. So these guys are in tune to the local gossip. You know, they're in Jerusalem. They live in the area. They know the religious system. They know that the religious leaders hate Jesus and they're aware of the plot. And they're there and they say, basically, well, look, there's Jesus. Isn't that the one that they want to kill? Why is he preaching and nobody's stopping him? Did they also become convinced that he's the Messiah? Others said, well, we know where this Jesus is from. But the Messiah, when he comes, nobody will know where he is from. And this is a little bit of a messianic folklore. If you go and you look at some of the Talmuds and the old Mishnah and some of the old writings, you'll find rabbinical opinions on the scripture, opinions about the prophecies of the Messiah. But there's some very clear-cut scripture. Now, they may have been mixing the part of the lamb with the lion. Jesus came the first time to die for our sins as the lamb. He will come in glory at a later time and will appear and touch down on the Mount of Olives and they might have had some confusion and they're starting to mix the scriptures up. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Might have even been a little insulting. You don't know him. He's speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to the religious leaders. Hey, we're from Jerusalem. The temple's right, a hop, skip, and a jump from over here. How can you insult us like that? This is a side of Jesus that many have not seen. Bear with me. I'm starting to lose my voice here. <clears throat> but Jesus cried out. Now, this word is, uh, if you look it up in the Greek language, kradzo, it means a piercing or a shriek or a call from a raven. If you're sitting outside and you hear a lot of the different birds tweeting and a raven starts calling, it gets your attention because it pierces the serenity of the, of the rest of the, the chirping, the symphony. Two, it's exclamatory, it's public, as if to say, pay attention, this is serious. Jesus saying, you think you figured me out. You know where I grew up. You know who uh, my family members are. But you really know nothing of the incarnate Messiah. Furthermore, even worse, is you don't know the Father. He's the one I represent. He's the one who sent me. And you need to be reconciled to him. They were lulled into a spiritual slumber. And some today are lulled into that slumber as well. Now, you can know scripture, but not really know it. Right? I mean, there are many that there's heretics out there that know the Bible. But they use it to justify their own doctrines and causes. So you can know scripture and not know it. You can know God, but not really know him. Oh, I know of God. I've heard of God. I've read of God. I grew up in a Christian home, but not really know God and not have that relationship. I'll submit to you the demons. The demons know God, the Father, a lot longer than we do. They've been around for a long time. They know his word, I guarantee, better than we do. They know what, what he likes and what he doesn't like probably better than us collectively. But where are they headed? So we need to know God, but we need to know God. And that's what Jesus came for. You guys memorize those scriptures, but you don't know him. You're very far from him. And that was his desire for us to be reconciled. And the worst offenders are those who are self-righteous, who think that they know God, who are maybe educated in the things of the scripture, 
or grew up in a certain pedigree, family line, and they, they're deceived and they don't know God. Verse 30, he says, or it says, then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. There were many other Messiah type figures. Do you realize that if you look, look up into history around this time, but they really haven't made a splash. Thutis and Judas. I don't know any churches of the Thutisites or the Judasites. We've never heard of them, but you can find them in history. Jesus was different. He spoke with authority. He made an impact. He equated himself with the Father so closely that they understood that he was claiming deity. 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Now, this seems like a a contradiction. They believed in him. What did they believe? Well, I mean, he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. But then in the next breath, they say, well, when the Messiah comes, will he do more than these? See, this is a picture of a a new believer with a base understanding. They're fragile. They have a little bit of the picture. They desire the things of the Lord. They desire that relationship. But they're a little confused. And new believers are the most vulnerable. They're the most uh, fragile. They're the most susceptible to deception and to be pulled away. Right? Those are the ones that we need to protect and we need to teach them the right things. If you're a new believer or you don't have been a Christian that long, find somebody who's a good example. Find somebody who you can look up to to teach you the right things. 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Enter the stiflers of free speech. (laughs) If we don't like what you have to say, we need to shut you down. As a matter of fact, the leader of the Mormons, Joseph Smith, if you study his history, Nauvoo, Illinois, right? The Nauvoo Expositor was a publication very critical and they were actually ex-Mormons. They were critical of the polygamy and a lot of heretical things that Joseph Smith and his followers were doing. So what did he do? He had that, that printing press, that place shut down. He destroyed it. He ended up getting arrested and died in a gun battle in prison in Carthage, Illinois. I say, let's have a debate. Let's talk about it. You know, the Church of the Dark Ages did the same thing. If you disagreed with them, they shut you down. And they killed many people just because of a difference in belief. What does Jesus say? Bring it into the light. Let's have that discussion. Let's win those who don't have the right opinion to Christ. That's exciting. Lord, help me do this. We're not here to shut people down, you know, or or gag them. And actually, when you deal with a person who's maybe a cultist, it makes your faith stronger because, you know, there's a check in your spirit. You know what they're saying doesn't make sense. And I know I've seen that somewhere. And you, you have this desire to go back to the scripture and find out where that is. But these guys wanted to shut him down. He was too popular. Verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Many tried to break Jesus' cryptic code, in a sense. And the ones that really wanted God, if they didn't understand, 
they were determined to find out what he was talking about because they knew that he had something that they didn't have. A little while you will see me. I'll be with you a little while longer and then where I go you can't come. Six months from this point in time in this teaching, he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he went back to the Father where they couldn't come. Now the dispersion were basically a historical note. They were the Jewish people that were scattered among the Greco-Roman world. There were many dispersions. There were many attacks against the Jewish people, which scattered them across the known world. So that's what they're speaking about. Is he going to go out and teach the Greeks or the Hellenistic Jews or the Jews scattered out into the Greco-Roman world? Maybe a little paranoia there. We're concerned. You know, we don't like the doctrine here, but we don't want it going out there either. But here's what's most important this morning is that if you died right now, is everybody here 100% assured that they would go to heaven? That really is the most important question that we can ask ourselves this morning. You know, if you died today, could you come with him? Right? Could you come with him? And it's not based on, again, family line, affiliation. It's not based on religion. It's not based on tradition. You have to know that you know him. You have to have a personal relationship with your Savior who died for your sins. I can tell you that I lived as a religionist many years of my life. And I'm not, let me take this for what it is in my example. I'm not against religious jewelry, but I wore it for the wrong reason. Many years of my life I wore a gold chain with a cross, a crucifix. And when I got scared about something, I would hold it. That was my amulet. That was my charm. And I thought that, and I actually felt good. See, your emotions can deceive you. It made me feel brave again. It made me feel a little stronger. It made me feel a little courageous. But I was holding on to that piece of gold for no reason. And it didn't really provide any security for me. If I died in my sins at that point in time, I would not be with the Lord. Even if I was clutching that piece of gold the whole time. So the point that I need to ask you this morning is, when you die, can you go where he went? Can you be with the Father? And in John 14, we'll speak about Jesus preparing mansions or rooms or aboding places for eternity for us when we die. He's preparing some awesome digs for us when we leave this planet. Right? But are we going there? Only you can answer that question. Verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. There's that word again. Saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is probably the most important portion in the whole chapter. This feast we spoke about in our, what we would understand as the fall, October. And at the end of the feast, the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would fill these big flagons, these huge containers of water and carry them together. And they would march from the pool of Siloam up into the temple area. And they would sing the Hallel praises, Psalm 113 to 118. And they would blow the shofar, the trumpet. It was a glorious celebration. And they would take those flagons and they would start pouring them down, uh, down the steps. And people would see this water flowing. 
Now, we have to go a little bit more into this because, because this was a very arid, dry climate. And it makes all the more sense, all the more refreshing. And we'll talk about that. But this commemorated one, water in the desert. When the children of Israel were thirsty, God provided water. It also, and that was the past, by the way. Think about yourself in the position at the feast 2,000 years ago. We're commemorating the water that came out of the rock, the water in the desert, so that the children of Israel didn't die of thirst. So that was the past they were looking to. It also commemorated the Messianic kingdom, where the water would flow freely. And I'll read a few scriptures about that. And that spoke of the future. You know what they forgot? The present. We live in the present. Salvation is the present. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. No matter when you read that scripture, you're reading it about the present. And they missed the living water. They completely missed the symbolism of the feast with the Messiah, the, the one who offered the keys to salvation standing right there. They were not in the present. And sometimes we do that. We live in the past, regrets about the past even, and we worry about the future. And the present keeps marching on and we keep missing the present only to become the next day, the past. Kind of weird mind twister, right? Let me just look at the symbolism a little bit more. I love this. Jesus in that symbolism is the rock, that rock in the wilderness that Moses struck and the water came out to feed or to to quench over two million people. So Jesus is the rock. And the water that comes out is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me prove that to you. The first time God, the Father, said to Moses, strike the rock and the water will come out freely. Jesus was struck in the Hebrew, the chabura, the chastisement. He was struck. He was beaten. He was crucified. He shed his blood. He died on that cross for the remission of our sins. And out of that rock came those rivers of torrents of living waters, indicative of the, of the Holy Spirit who seals us when we become believers. The second time, Moses struck the rock and God was angry at him. And he said, you're not going to enter the promised land now. How unfair God is. What an unfair parent. And I say that facetiously. Why did he not let him into the promised land? Because he was supposed to speak to the rock. Well, what's the big deal, Pastor Joe? It still seems a little harsh because that's emblematic of Christ was only struck once. He was put on that cross once. It's a finished work of the cross so that we could have everlasting life. Any time after that, speak to the rock. Can I have some water today? Can I have some Holy Spirit? Here's my, here's my jug, Lord. Can you fill it up? I want my cup to runneth over. So as a believer... Once Christ has already been struck, once he's already paid for your sins, at that point now there's a relationship. Jesus said, if you pray and ask for the Holy Spirit, how much the Father will give you an unending amount of the Holy Spirit. He's para, he's with us, he's en, he's in us, right? And then he's epi, he's upon us, the different Greek prepositions. Very exciting. It is amazing how anyone can be a part of a religious or spiritual system and not understand the symbolism that's behind it. I'm just going to read a few scriptures to you. I'm really big into Old Testament, New Testament. It's all God's word. Some make a huge dichotomy. There's a huge chasm. I don't believe that. It's all God's word. So I want to tie in a few scriptures to show you that this idea of this water, this living water, is not a new concept. 
Each verse is one line. Isaiah 12, 3. And the, the caption is, Thanksgiving in the Messiah's kingdom. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Next scripture, Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Third scripture, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. How very unusual to say that come buy, but you don't have to have any money to buy it. I'm just going to give it to you freely. Pretty neat stuff. As the scripture has said, and we can find many other scriptures prior to this time that speak about this, this emblem or this symbolism. Imagine Jesus watching, knowing the symbolism, and nobody was getting it. Worse, the religious leaders weren't getting it. And he was loudly proclaiming this. Why? Because of his passion for the lost. He wasn't unbalanced. He wasn't coming unraveled. The pressure wasn't too great for them. His desire is for the lost as it is today. And I've got to tell you that that passion spills into pulpits. Because we got the bug. We get what it means. We want to see people saved. Right? This desire just to see salvation. He cried out again as in snap out of it. Guys, snap out of it. This religion is a drug that's um, causing you guys to be stupefied. There was a, about a year ago, my partner and I went to a call and there was a teenage girl who had overdosed on a narcotic. And she was laying there. We brought in the oxygen. We were trying to work on her. You know, in my mind, I'm praying that she would come back. And the medics came and they had this miracle drug, Narcan, and they gave her the needle and all of a sudden she started to come too. It's, uh, it blocks the opiate receptors, which reverses the process. But you know what? She still had to be shaken. We still had to ask her a question. We had to make sure she focused and kept awake until we got her to the hospital. But she was stupefied. She was going further, further into a descent where it could have taken her life. In Middlesex County, I have to tell you, there's a lot of overdoses. A lot of people are dying from these opiates, from this heroin, this bad stuff. But in this particular instance, Jesus was seeing these people praising and singing and stuff, but they weren't saved. They didn't get it. And he was trying to shake them out of their complacency, out of their drug-induced stupor. You guys don't know the Lord, but I want you to know him. And this is the way to do it. It's no different today. You know, I, I love Calvary Chapel. You know, there's so many things I love about it. A lot of great churches out there, but not everybody in the church is saved. You know, the, the church, the building, this isn't sanctuary like in those old horror movies. Once you get to the church, you're okay. There needs to be a personal relationship with your Savior. The living water, indicative of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask the question, what's so great about the Holy Spirit? Especially if you're a new believer, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, kind of mysterious. He's called a he, but he's a spirit. Um, but, you know, Jesus, we can see there's a personal. God's a little bit more mysterious. The Holy Spirit is even more mysterious. What's so great about the Holy Spirit? Well, let me let me back up for a minute. D.A. Carson is a, a great Bible expositor, and he speaks about the Christological view versus the traditional view. 
when it speaks about the fountains of living water will come out of him. Uh, the Greek didn't have commas, so you would have to take the Greek sentence structure, use it contextually, and find what, what the Lord is saying. Very easy to do in 99.9% of the time. The Christological argument says that out of Christ comes fountains of living waters. The traditional view says that when Jesus speaks about salvation, um, out of the believer will come fountains of living water, and there's this impasse. I say this, they're both right. Jesus is the source of the living water. And as the source of the living water, he can fill and have any of the believers filled with that living water. And when it spills out of them, it spills onto others. So there's your uh, argument rectified. But let's look at the Holy Spirit for a moment. In a nutshell, what's so great about the Holy Spirit? Well, God offers a part of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit indwells us, lives in us. When we become believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's an awesome thing. You know, it's one thing to be with someone, but now here's this concept. As much as we love our spouses and our children, they can't actually be inside of us. But here's a part of God that resides inside of us. So number one, salvation experience. And number two, it's the power in a believer's life. And sometimes we go through life as if it's just about us and we forget the power of the Holy Spirit. And then maybe, and listen, we've all been there. I've been there from pulpits to pews, you know what I'm saying? And you go on with life and you go on and you say, you know what, something's missing. And what we realize is we're not relying on God. We're going back and relying on our flesh, our abilities, our education, our upbringing, power in a believer's life. And in this word, he says, out of his, really out of his um, heart, the Greek word for heart is cardia. The word here that's used is koilia, which koilia and cardia about this time were, were synonymous. However, koilia can also mean belly. It can mean cavity. You know, as we try to fill our lives, this cavity in our lives with stuff and material things, we find that it doesn't make us happy. It does for a little while. Let's just be honest. It does for a little while, maybe a year. Maybe it's, if it's something really needed, it makes you happy for five years. But there's always that emptiness, that we try to fill that emptiness with things. And what we realize is the only thing that we can fill it with is God. Not only do we get filled, but now we become overflowing. And listen, if that's not your life, that's okay. You know what? Go home tonight and say, you know what, Lord? Like that pastor said, I want the Holy Spirit. I want more of you in my life. I want him to be in me. I want him to overflow me and see what he does. See what he does. Give him a chance. On that great day. Incidentally, the great day of the feast, 500 years ago, Haggai, the, the minor prophet, one of the minor prophets preached. In Haggai 2, 7 and 8, he spoke about the desire of all nations, which was a euphemism for the Messiah to, to grace the second temple and to glorify it. Now, we know that from the different rabbinical writings that the Shekinah glory and the Ark of the Covenant weren't in the second temple, but Jesus visited it regularly. This is another time-sensitive prophecy because at the time of Haggai, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was built by the children of Israel under Ezra and Zerubbabel and God's um, you know, God's guidance. Second temple's not there anymore either. 
So anybody who comes to claim to be Messiah cannot be because God has purposely put in time-sensitive prophecies to limit the field of players, so to speak. It was only Christ. It was only Jesus. 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid laid hands on him. So the crowd. He's a prophet. He's the Christ. He's not. He's a good man. He's a deceiver. Opinions we still hear 2,000 years later. And what's amazing is Jesus is always at the center of it. Now, I do have uh, empathy for those that are seeking the truth today because there's so many voices. There's so many websites. There's so many talk shows. Where do we find the truth about who Jesus was? From Oprah? I mean, some do. This is a serious decision which can affect the rest of your eternity. So I don't know that I would do that. Liberal theology, conservative theology, help. Help. The answer is found in the word. We go back to the word. When I um, officiate at funerals, uh, this is I'll, I'll say what I say in a modified form. People will research where to go on vacation, where to get the best airline tickets, right? Competition in the United States, free market. We will research sports stats of our favorite sports figures, obsessing over pouring through stats and, you know, RBIs and depend on which player it is. Uh, Colleges for our kids. I see parents stress and pull their hair out, you know, which is the best college, but this one is closer, but this one is, you know, and then they do that. So what about setting up a retirement account? Do we take any of that stuff lightly? Of course not. There's a lot of work and investigation that goes through that. But the most important decision in your life, who is Jesus and what is your relationship to him? Sometimes we're very flippant about it. The world is flippant. Ah, I heard a friend of a friend say this. Is that good enough? As some of you are saying, I don't want you doing my funeral. <laughs> it's a little more subdued and, and such, but, but you get the point. Why is it that we research things that don't last long, especially if we die tomorrow? Could happen to any of us. Why do we research those things but are a little bit more lackadaisical and don't put as much into finding the truth about the scripture? Is it my job as the pastor? Yes. But it's also every believer's job here, or more importantly, if you don't know the Lord yet. Keep that in mind. Verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does, does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. What's amazing about the scripture is it doesn't paint a picture-perfect 
uh, story of Jesus coming, everybody falling in love with him, and then the end, happily ever after. It gives everything. Uh, it gives all the history, it gives the discussions, it gives the debates. Right? So it's, it's not, you know, collusion's not here. Because actually a lot of it is, it points out the failures of mankind. So let's look at the different groups. Number one, the officers. Part of the religious establishment um, probably hardened from their jobs. They probably saw a lot. Whether it's the Bible or extra biblical sources, we know that the religious system was corrupt, even from those uh, authors that were Jewish. They planned to take Jesus, but instead these officers were taken by Jesus. He pierced their hard hearts and they put their livelihoods in jeopardy. We don't know what happened to these officers. They probably got fired. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't follow orders. No matter how good they explained it, they probably got fired. And my question to you today is, did you come in here with a, per, a certain mindset and the Lord has pierced through your heart? The more that we read the word, the more that you are hearing it, you're, you're warming up to Jesus because the word is changing your heart. And maybe you came here with a friend and you're really what you weren't, weren't sold. But the more you read the word, you say, like these officers, this, no one's ever spoken like this. This has got to be true. The second group or person was Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. They were all from the upper echelon. So when the religious leaders accuse Nicodemus of nobody from our group, as a matter of fact, in Acts 6-7, the Bible tells us that even many of the priests became believers. However, Nicodemus pushes back. Uh, when we covered the first part of chapter 7, we asked, when the majority is wrong, what do we do? Nicodemus, against peer pressure, remember, you were the who's who if you were part of this group. If you were kicked out, you were disgraced. But he asked some questions. He challenged them. Do we have the courage to stand against those that maybe are in our peer group for the cause of Christ, for the cause of salvation? And then third, the religious leaders, they wanted to shut him down at any cost. Well, what they said, many things they said were not true. First of all, in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, the Bible tells us about Zebulun and Naphtali. The people saw a great light. That was northern and southern Galilee. Okay, so, yes, a prophet, the Messiah was supposed to come from that area. Two, Jonah was from the Galilee area, and I believe Nahum too. There was another prophet as well. They were so maddened by their personal uh, ideas that they, they didn't want to see the truth. You ever hear that expression, don't confuse me with the facts? I've got my mind made up. You ever been so angry? Come on, we've all been there. You've been so angry that you're not listening to reason. And then you look back afterwards and say, oh, they made some good points. <laughs> I just was really upset. So you can see human nature here. And everyone went to his house. Chuck Smith said that Jesus forced division. I agree with that. Jesus challenged people. He was controversial. He was divisive. Oh, Jesus was divisive. I thought he wanted to bring us all together in happiness. Jesus said specifically in the Gospels, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. Division even among households. A mother against their daughter, a father against his son, brothers against each other. When Jesus came, he brought a sword. Because everyone had to make a decision which side you were going to fall on. He did not allow fence-sitters. And he still doesn't allow that today. As we wrap this up, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, 
God's provision for his people in the greatest of need, especially the water pouring right. Remember, out in that area, it was dry, it was hot, there were stones, it was desert. The children of Israel, how refreshing it would have been to see that water just pouring out. You know, if you've worked in the yard or you're outside, man, it's been so hot the last few weeks, 90 plus degrees. Oh, you almost fantasize about a big glass of cold water. I just want to get that water. But if we're only thinking about water, we've missed the entire chapter. Jesus is calling the thirsty soul. What happened the last few days, and I don't want to take advantage of it, the massacre in the movie theater, we live in an arid, intolerable, sinful world. We live in a world without hope. Hopefully by now we realize that our politicians, I don't care what side they're on, cannot bring us hope. They can't. That should have been Jesus' slogan, hope and change, because he's the only one who can deliver it. I don't care what your affiliation is. We also are stained by sin, leaving us dry, exhausted, and unfulfilled. And like that word, koilea, belly, cavity, abdomen, void, sometimes to make us feel fulfilled, we stuff stuff into that. Keep stuffing, keep stuffing, hold it down, make sure the top doesn't blow off. Try to hold it together, and we do that in life, don't we? That was me before I was a Christian. Something was telling me it's not working. You know, you're on a a runaway train, and there's no track left in the next mile. But I just kept pretending, and I kept trying, and it didn't work. Material things, relationships, addictions, things that emotionally soothe us, books are very popular, media. I want to read this book because it makes me feel good about myself ego burst boosting pursuits but it will never satisfy jesus said if anyone anyone regardless of where you come from or how much you've been kicked around in life if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink he who believes in me out of his heart will flow fountains of living water not only will we be fulfilled but we'll be the vehicle to for others to be fulfilled Man, that's a tall order, Jesus. Well, take him up on it. Challenge him. He says it, and whatever he says is true. Christ offers fulfillment for our souls. The only thing left to do is drink of that fountain, salvation. And then to keep drinking. As I say to a brother, keep drinking. A newer believer, keep reading the word. Keep listening to the sermons. Keep praying. Keep drinking. So you'll be quenched spiritually, and you'll have an effect on others. You see your brothers and sisters struggling. You see your parents aged and having trouble. The Bible says, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. He's not deaf, but he doesn't answer the prayers of those that are steeped in sin. When we come to the cross, Jesus paid for those sins. Now the communication is free again. The signal is good. So you want to make an impact in someone else's life? You first need to be saved in order to help and to save others. Keep drinking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for Jesus' word.